When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 34, The Secession of Arms. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, last year, we heard how Parliament impeached Queen Henrietta Maria for treason. In the southwest, Sir Ralph Hopton finally broke his army out of Cornwall, winning the Battle of Stratton while outnumbered two to one. We then heard how he led a unified force of his own army and Prince Maurice to victory at first the Battle of Lansdowne and then the Battle of Roundway Down. The Battle of Roundway Down meant the destruction of Sir William Waller, William the Conqueror's army, and then the capture of Bath and Bristol for the Royalist cause. We also heard how the Parliamentarian cause was becoming increasingly divided. The Earl of Essex, in theory the Commander-in-Chief of Parliament's armies, was having trouble asserting his authority over his subordinates, to the point that by the end of June he offered his resignation, which wasn't accepted. When we left Waller, he had around 1,000 men left from an army of some 5,500. While he would later admit he'd fallen victim to overconfidence, in the immediate aftermath he tried to blame Essex for allowing royalist reinforcements out of Oxford. Considering Essex had tried to apply pressure to Oxford earlier in the year, and had ordered Waller to come and aid him, who then ignored the order, that was a bit rich. Bristol's sudden fall to the Royalists brought the king a major port and a large city, with desperately needed supplies and manufacturing. But the assault cost a lot of men, and while it was an advantage in a long war, it weakened the Royalist position in the short term. We've already heard how the Royalist cause was suffering far fewer personal rivalries than the Parliamentarians. Not that there weren't rivalries, there absolutely were, but at this stage they weren't getting in the way of military strategy. Compared to Essex and Waller, the Royalists were skipping down the road in perfect harmony. But the fate of Bristol gives us a window into the challenge Charles faced in keeping all his subordinates, a lot of whom were powerful aristocrats with egos to match, in check. The Marquis of Hertford, 
was the Lord Lieutenant of Somerset, which made him the theoretical commander of the king's western armies, and gave him the right to appoint the governor of Bristol. Hartford nominated Ralph Hopton, and in many ways Hopton was a good choice. He'd proven his worth several times over, he was a competent leader from the region, and he was still recuperating from the explosion of the ammo cart. But this wasn't the right choice for Rupert. Because Prince Rupert was Prince Rupert. He'd captured the city. He was the king's nephew. And so Rupert wrote to his royal uncle and requested the governorship of the important and valuable city. Charles arrived in Bristol just six days after it fell, and he entered the city to cheering crowds and a simmering tension between Rupert and Hartford. Charles, to be fair, resolved the problem with tact. Rupert was confirmed in his position as governor, Hopton was made his lieutenant governor, Prince Maurice took over command of the Western Army and was sent to fully conquer Devon and Dorset, and Hartford was promoted out of the region, raised to the King's Command Council at Oxford. This was meant to be a result to satisfy everyone. And in a sense, everyone got something they wanted. Hartford received recognition of his importance, Maurice got a command of his own. Rupert got the governorship, and Hopton... Well, Hopton just didn't want any strife between the leadership, and he was more than happy to be Rupert's deputy if it avoided that. But it reeked of nepotism. Two of Charles's nephews got exactly what they wanted. Everyone else got scraps. Again, the royalist high command was the very picture of unity compared to Parliament, but cracks were beginning to show. In the aftermath of these royalist victories, and with the general weakness of the Parliamentarian Front, it might be assumed that the royalists would move decisively to end the war. They did not. Partly to allow time for Rupert's and Hopton's armies to be replenished, and partly because Essex still stood in the way to London, Charles ordered a siege of Gloucester. Capturing the city would have benefits. It would open up the entire Severn Valley to royalist trade and movement, and deprive Parliament of a significant base to the west of Oxford. But the decision has been criticised by historians. The alternative plan, discussed on the Council, was for the King's main army to link up with the Earl of Newcastle's northern army and to march on London. The Council and the King were convinced by the beliefs that Gloucester would fall as quickly as Bristol had, and then the armies could march on London. Both beliefs were wrong. Gloucester was garrisoned by about 1,500 men, and Charles moved his main field army of 13,000 men into position. Rupert suggested a direct assault. It would be costly, but it worked at Bristol, and time was of the essence. Charles denied his nephew's suggestion, and instead summoned the city to surrender. Two citizens carried the reply. They were, quote, wholly bound to obey the commands of his majesty, signified by both houses of parliament, and are resolved by God's help to keep this city accordingly. End quote. To paraphrase Lipscomb's reading of the situation, Charles now had no choice but to besiege Gloucester. If he withdrew after the city openly denied his authority, he'd lose face. And since he'd publicly rejected Rupert's suggestion to storm the walls, he couldn't backtrack on that decision or he'd lose face. So a long siege to starve the city out was needed. 
and that sacrificed any chance to march on London. His army began preparations, he left General Riven in command, and to quote Lipscomb, within a week he returned to Oxford. He had to placate the flabbergasted Queen, who was furious and keen to discover how the King was going to win his kingdom back on the walls of Gloucester and not London. Both sides skirmished, but they largely focused on long-term siege works. Ditches were dug by the attackers, walls strengthened and manned by the defenders, and both sides went to work mining and countermining each other. The garrison commander's only objective was to buy time for Parliament to send a relief force, and he was helped in this by the terrible summer rains which bogged down the besiegers. On the 19th of August, Essex finally received his orders to relieve Gloucester. His men were ordered back to their regiments, with any deserters executed. Parliament supplemented his force with another 4,000 men, conscripted into the trained bands. On the 1st of September, Essex's forces mustered and began to march west, and by the 5th, his army was in view of the city walls. Essex ordered four cannons to be fired to alert everyone, besieger and besieged, that he had arrived. The garrison was relieved. The royalists were devastated. Charles ordered his army to withdraw from their siege works and abandoned the siege of Gloucester. The next day, he led them on a march north. He planned to cut Essex off from his supplies and communication with London. After the rapid march from London, the Parliamentarian army was exhausted, and it took another two days before they were ready to move. The two armies then spent a week attempting to outmaneuver each other, which, in stark contrast to Charles at Gloucester, I won't get bogged down with. The important thing is that on the night of the 19th of September, Charles's armies held the town of Newbury and the road east to London. Essex didn't have the forces to quickly seize Newbury and its bridge across the nearby River Kennet. If he waited, his army would starve, die of disease, or desert, and there was always the potential for royalist reinforcements to arrive from the west and trap him. He had to force his way past the royalist army, and he had to do it soon. Essex, his army dispirited and exhausted, showed his experience as a commander. Again, quoting Lipscomb, Essex was wily and experienced enough to realise that the best way to raise morale was to take the fight to the royalists without delay. At 3am that night, the army began to march. Essex himself led seven regiments as the vanguard, with one very important objective, to take and hold the high ground of Round Hill. According to parliamentary accounts, Essex had to chase off a few royalist troopers on top of Round Hill, but according to royalist accounts, the hill was completely undefended. The Earl of Digby blamed this on the darkness of the night, but another royalist at the battle insisted afterwards that they'd had day enough and called it a most gross and absurd mistake. Aside from the importance of Round Hill, the rest of the terrain worked in Parliament's favour. Most of it was enclosed with fences and hedges, reducing the effectiveness of cavalry and melee infantry. Firepower was at a premium, and Essex had more of it. The First Battle of Newbury was, like the Battle of Edge Hill, a bloody stalemate. 
the London-trained bands stand out as particularly well-disciplined, forming squares at the approach of Rupert's cavalry, and holding firm against not one, but two determined charges, all the while cutting down the prince's men with withering musket fire. It was only after a charge by the Royalist infantry that the London troops broke, but the Royalists were unable to take advantage of this collapse. They were exhausted and low on ammunition. Both sides stopped going on the offensive as the light began to fade. The sun set at 6pm, but long-range shots from muskets and artillery carried on until at least 10. In another parallel to Edgehill, when the fighting finally stopped, the Parliamentarian army was still on the field, and the Royalists still blocked their path to London. Around a thousand soldiers were killed on both sides, and Charles was horrified by the losses. A number of high-profile men were among the dead, including the Earl of Carnarvon, Viscount Falkland, and the Earl of Sunderland. Whether distraught over the losses and the apparent futility of the battle, or aware of his army's exhaustion and need to recover, Charles ordered his men into Newbury. The next day, Essex ordered his army down the now open road to London, although he was wary that this was a trap. Luckily for Essex, no serious royalist attack came. Rupert would ride out with his cavalry and harass the retreating Essex, but the parliamentarian commander had no real trouble getting back to London. He entered the city in triumph. The First Battle of Newbury stands out as one of Essex's greatest moments as Parliament's commander-in-chief. Some historians view the First Battle of Newbury as Charles's last chance to end the civil war on his terms. Had he destroyed Essex's force, he could have marched on London, and either taken the city by force, or negotiated with those MPs and lords who desired peace. But he didn't destroy Essex's force, and now the moment was gone. Because while we focused on the military events of August and September 1643, political events have turned this English civil war into, truly, a war of three kingdoms. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. 
Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Since January 1643, Charles had ordered the Marquess of Ormond, James Butler, and the Earl of Clanricard, Ulick Burke, to negotiate with the Irish Confederacy, now a formalised government which controlled the bulk of the island of Ireland. Ormond's main priorities were the preservation of Protestantism in Ireland and the authority of the Crown. Charles granted his agents in Ireland some latitude, but he did make his position on certain points clear to Ormond. He understood Irish resentment towards the English Parliament's attempt to legislate on behalf of the Irish Parliament. He was hardly the English Parliament's biggest fan. But he refused to consider religious concessions or to alter the pre-existing political relationship between England and Ireland. Poyning's law had to remain in place. Protestantism had to remain the state religion. Likewise, Charles refused to consider giving up control over political appointments and could not countenance the return of Irish land confiscated prior to his reign. This was a very unsatisfactory series of positions for the Confederates, and partly this can be blamed on Charles's personality. We've seen plenty of examples of Charles's stubbornness over what he considered his kingly rights, and his refusal to bend to the demands of his subjects. But we also have to consider the wider context of the Three Kingdoms. To be seen as giving in to Catholic demands would damage his position with not just Irish Protestants, who would see this as a betrayal, but his subjects in England and Scotland. He was already suspected of Catholic sympathies. The rumours that he had arranged the Irish rebellion in the first place had never gone away. The Confederates made their position known at Trim on the 17th of March. They criticised the wide-ranging legal discrimination which Catholics faced under the law, and denounced the Adventurers Act. They also criticised the rule of the Lord's Justices, which we'll talk more about in a moment. In return for various religious and political concessions from the King, the Confederacy suggested that they could offer military and financial assistance to Charles in his current difficulties. They were, after all, his loyal subjects. He just needed to show that he was worthy of their loyalty. These negotiations took a long time, and neither the Confederates nor Ormond were going to sit on their hands. In Ulster, Owen Roe O'Neill was mustering his army, as was John Burke in Connacht. In Leinster, O'Neill's rival Thomas Preston, general of the provincial army, confronted Ormond in a series of skirmishes and battles over February and March. Neither side really came out well from this. Preston was regularly on the losing side, but irregular warfare against Ormond's supply chains and the interference of Confederate sympathisers limited his offensive abilities. None of this back-and-forth violence got in the way of the negotiations. But you know what did get in the way of negotiations? Lord Justice Sir William Parsons. Remember him? He, along with Sir John Bollays, had served as Lord's Justices since February 1641, and effectively ruled the kingdom in the absence of the Lord Deputy. As we discussed, their heavy-handed rule helped spark the rebellion and fan the flames. Parsons was a die-hard planter. 
He'd served on the commission sent by the Earl of Middlesex back in the reign of James I to identify why it was so expensive to the crown to govern the Kingdom of Ireland. On this commission, he championed the plantation policy, insisting that it was the only way to properly develop the resources of the kingdom, and by extension, bring revenue to the crown. Now a Lord Justice, when the Irish Rebellion erupted, he saw no distinction between loyal and rebellious Catholics, and little difference between Gaelic Irish and Old English Catholics. His actions, and the actions of his subordinates, were both exceptionally brutal against Catholic civilians and prisoners, and self-defeating. His treatment of the Old English turned prospective allies into enemies. He blocked attempts by Catholics, both Old English and Irish, to transmit their grievances and demands to the king, and expected the inevitable crushing of the rebels to be a windfall of land and riches, for the better civilising of the natives, of course. He openly disagreed with Ormond's attempts to broker peace, wanting instead to extirpate the Catholics. This naturally meant he aligned more with the English parliamentarians, who took a similarly hard-line view of the Irish situation, not least because the Adventurers Act promised confiscated Irish land in return for cash. Cash that had now been long spent. All this combined, on the 31st of March, Parsons was removed from his position as Lord Justice by the King. When he continued to cause trouble for Ormond and the peace process, he was ejected from the Privy Council altogether and imprisoned in Dublin Castle. Writing to the Earl of Cork, he whined that it was, quote, a fair recompense for all my zealous and painful toil to the crown, which God knows was hardly done. The ground is, as I find, because I have endeavoured to be sharp to those damnable rebels, who now seem in a fair way to evade all their villainy, end quote. Parsons would be imprisoned until November 1643, when he was released on bail. As far as acts of goodwill go, Charles could have done much worse than deposing Parsons. On the 23rd of April, with the negotiations not progressing as quickly as the king would have liked, Charles gave Ormond permission to offer a truce to the Confederates for one year. Now this was something Ormond could work with. A cessation of hostilities with the Royalist forces would be invaluable to the Confederates. Even a year would allow them to focus on the other two armies they had to contend with, the Covenanters and the Parliamentarians in Ulster. The King would get what he'd always wanted. More soldiers. Not Irish Catholics, which is what he would be accused of by Parliamentarian pamphleteers, no, what Charles wanted were the English and Welsh soldiers, which had been sent over to put down the rebellion before the civil war in England broke out. The cessation would allow that. It took another five more months of negotiation, during which the war between Confederate and Royalists continued, and despite the objections of the papal envoy, Pierre Francesco Scarampi, who warned that any ceasefire the king offered would be a double-edged sword, on the 15th of September, 1643, the cessation was finally signed. A month later, the first contingent of troops disembarked in England. In the short term, Charles's Irish policy had borne fruit, but the cessation caused as much trouble for the king as it solved. Protestants in Ireland saw it as nothing less than a betrayal. They had been forced out of their homes, they had been robbed, beaten, and killed by these Catholic rebels, and their king, 
who was meant to enforce justice and the true Protestant religion, had just signed a truce with them to better fight his Protestant subjects. Outrage turned to dissent, which will turn to defection. In London, the news of the cessation simply confirmed the fears of many. The king was clearly in league with the Catholic rebels, as they'd always known, and soon English shores would be swarmed by bloodthirsty papists marching under the king's banner. Of course, we know Charles had never been in league with the Confederates, and he wanted English soldiers sailing to England, not Irish. But that didn't stop Parliament looking with relief at the document, already ratified by the Church of Scotland and the Convention of Estates, and awaiting their own approval, for what was essentially a military and spiritual alliance. The Solemn League and Covenant. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, Michelle Gersich, the Duchess of Devon, Rory Martin, Duke of Clarence, Brendan Bonner, Duke of Ormond, Thomas Kessler, Marquess of Dorset, Christian Sebast, Marquess of Winchester, Brandon Stansbury, Marquess of Montague, Jim Du Bois, Earl of Leicester, Michael Thomas, Earl of Northumberland. They have been joined by Rosalie Hopko, Countess of Albany, Alan M., Earl of Pomfret, Jeremy, Viscount Woodburn, and Nacho, Viscount Martinez. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put into any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who supported me on Patreon, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. These are by far the best way to help the podcast grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, my name is Matt host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.